Chapter Fifteen of *The Rise of Silas Lapham* by William Dean Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lapham's strenuous face was broken up with the emotions that had forced him to this question: shame, fear of the things that must have been thought of him, mixed with the faint hope that he might be mistaken, which died out at the shock and pitying look in Corey's eyes. Was I drunk? He repeated. I ask you because I was never touched by drink in my life before, and I don't know. He stood with his huge hands trembling on the back of his chair, and his dry lips apart, as he stared at Corey. That is what everyone understood, Colonel Lapham, said the young man. Everyone saw how it was. Don't— Did they talk it over after I left? asked Lapham vulgarly. Excuse me, said Corey, blushing. My father doesn't talk his guests over with one another. He added, with youthful superfluity, "'You were among gentlemen.' "'I was the only one that wasn't a gentleman there,' lamented Lapham. "'I disgraced you. I disgraced my family. I mortified your father before his friends.' His head dropped. "'I showed that I wasn't fit to go with you. I'm not fit for any decent place. "'What did I say? What did I do?' he asked, suddenly lifting his head and confronting Corey. "'Out with it. If you could bear to see it and hear it, I had ought to bear to know it.' "'There was nothing, really nothing,' said Corey. "'Beyond the fact that you were not quite yourself, there was nothing whatever. "'My father did speak of it to me,' he confessed, when we were alone. "'He said that he was afraid we had not been thoughtful of you "'if you were in the habit of only taking water. "'I told him I had not seen wine at your table. "'The others said nothing about you. "'Ah, but what did they think? "'Probably what we did, that it was purely a misfortune, an accident.' "'I wasn't fit to be there,' persisted Lapham. "'Do you want to leave?' he asked with savage abruptness. "'Leave?' faltered the young man. "'Yes, quit the business. Cut the whole connection.' "'I haven't the remotest idea of it,' cried Corey in amazement. "'Why in the world should I?' "'Because you're a gentleman, and I'm not, and it ain't right I should be over you. "'If you want to go, I know some parties that would be glad to get you.' I will give you up if you want to go before anything worse happens, and I shan't blame you. I can help you to something better that I can offer you here, and I will. There's no question of my going unless you wish it, said Corey. If you do... Will you tell your father, interrupted Lapham, that I had a notion all the time that I was acting the drunken blackguard, and that I've suffered for it all day? Will you tell him I don't want him to notice me if we ever meet? and that I know I'm not fit to associate with gentlemen in anything but a business way, if I am that. "'Certainly I shall do nothing of the kind,' retorted Corey. "'I can't listen to you any longer. What you say is shocking to me, shocking in a way you can't think.' "'Why, man,' exclaimed Lapham with astonishment, "'if I can stand it, you can.' "'No,' said Corey with a sick look. "'That doesn't follow. You may denounce yourself if you will.' "'But I have my reasons for refusing to hear you, "'my reasons why I can't hear you. "'If you say another word, I must go away.' "'I don't understand you,' faltered Lapham in bewilderment, "'which absorbed even his shame. "'You exaggerate the effect of what has happened,' said the young man. "'It's enough, more than enough, for you to have mentioned the matter to me, "'and I think it's unbecoming in me to hear you.' "'He made a movement toward the door, "'but Lapham stopped him with the tragic humility of his appeal.' "'Don't go yet. I can't let you. I've disgusted you, I see that. But I didn't mean to. I—I I take it back.' 
"'Oh, there's nothing to take back,' said Corrie, with a repressed shudder for the abasement which he had seen. "'But let us say no more about it. Think no more. There wasn't one of the gentlemen present last night who didn't understand the matter precisely as my father and I did, and that fact must end it between us two. He went out into the larger office beyond, leaving Lapham helpless to prevent his going. It had become a vital necessity with him to think the best of Lapham, but his mind was in a whirl of whatever thoughts were most injurious. He thought of him the night before in the company of those ladies and gentlemen, and he quivered in resentment of his vulgar, braggart, uncouth nature. He recognised his own allegiance to the exclusiveness to which he was born and bred, as a man perceives his duty to his country when her rights are invaded. His eye fell on the porter going about in his shirt-sleeves to make the place fast for the night, and he said to himself that Dennis was not more plebeian than his master, that the gross appetites, the blunt sense, the purblind ambition, the stupid arrogance were the same in both, and the difference was in a brute will that probably left the porter the gentler man of the two. The very innocence of Lapham's life in the direction in which he had erred wrought against him in the young man's mood. It contained the insult of clownish inexperience. Amidst the stings and flashes of his wounded pride, all the social traditions, all the habits of feeling, which he had silenced more and more by force of will during the past months, asserted their natural sway, and he rioted in his contempt of the offensive boar, who was even more offensive in his shame than in his trespass. He said to himself that he was a quarry, as if that were somewhat, yet he knew that at the bottom of his heart, all the time, was that which must control him at last, and which seemed sweetly to be suffering his rebellion, secure of his submission in the end. It was almost with the girl's voice that it seemed to plead with him, to undo in him, effect by effect, the work of his indignant resentment, to set all things in another and fairer light, to give him hopes, to suggest palliations, to protest against injustices. It was in Lapham's favour that he was so guiltless in the past, and now Corey asked himself if it were the first time he could have wished a guest at his father's table to have taken less wine. Whether Lapham was not rather to be honoured for not knowing how to contain his folly where a veteran transgressor might have held his tongue. He asked himself, with a thrill of sudden remorse, whether, when Lapham humbled himself in the dust so shockingly, he had shown him the sympathy to which such abandon had the right, and he had to own that he had met him on the gentlemanly ground, sparing himself and asserting the superiority of his sort, and not recognising that Lapham's humiliation came from the sense of wrong which he had helped to accumulate upon him by superfinely standing aloof and refusing to touch him. He shut his desk and hurried out into the early night, not to go anywhere, but to walk up and down, to try and find his way out of the chaos which now seemed ruin, and now the materials out of which fine actions and a happy life might be shaped. Three hours later he stood at Lapham's door. At times, what he now wished to do had seemed forever impossible, and again it had seemed as if he could not wait a moment longer. He had not been careless, but very mindful of what he knew must be the feelings of his own family in regard to the Laphams, and he had not concealed from himself that his family had great reason and justice on their side in not wishing him to alienate himself from their common life and associations. The most that he could urge to himself was that they had not all the reason and justice, but he had hesitated and delayed because they had so much. Often he could not make it appear right that he should merely please himself in what chiefly concerned himself. 
he perceived how far apart in all their experiences and ideals the Lapham girls and his sisters were, how different Mrs. Lapham was from his mother, how grotesquely unlike were his father and Lapham, and the disparity had not always amused him. He had often taken it very seriously, and sometimes he said that he must forego the hope on which his heart was set. There had been many times in the past months when he had said that he must go no further, and as often as he had taken this stand he had yielded it, upon this or that excuse, which he was aware of trumping up. It was part of the complication that he should be unconscious of the injury he might be doing to someone besides his family and himself. This was the defect of his diffidence, and it had come to him in a pang for the first time, when his mother said that she would not have the Laphams think she was to make more of the acquaintance than he did, and then it had come too late. Since then he had suffered quite as much from the fear that it might not be as that it might be so, and now, in the mood, romantic and exalted, in which he found himself concerning Lapham, he was as far as might be from vain confidence. He ended the question in his own mind by affirming to himself that he was there, first of all, to see Lapham, and give him an ultimate proof of his own perfect faith and unabated respect, and to offer him what reparation this involved for that want of sympathy, of humanity, which he had shown. End of chapter 15